Let's turn together to our reading for this afternoon, John chapter 17, the verses 1 through 10. John chapter 17, we're going to read the beginning of what's sometimes called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, the prayer that he prayed for his disciples and for the world before his crucifixion. John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So far. We also read from Lord's Day 47 of the Catechism. We are working our way through the Lord's Prayer. Lord's Day 47 on page 561 discusses the first petition, and it asks the question, what is the first petition? Hallowed be your name. That is, grant us first of all that we may rightly know you, and sanctify, glorify, and praise you in all your works, in which shine forth your almighty power, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, mercy, and truth. Grant us also that we may so direct our whole life, our thoughts, words, and actions, that your name was not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you think about your life so far, what has been the most difficult to accept? The answer to that question would probably vary quite a bit depending on who you asked. Perhaps some of us have been sick for a long time. We found that difficult to accept. Perhaps some of us have a family member who has left the church, and we have struggled to accept that. Others, again, have a dream that went unfulfilled. 
However, if you get to the bottom of these answers, they would probably all have something in common, and that something is our own limitations. At its root, that can be the most difficult thing to accept in your life, that you are limited and that your limitations will increase and not decrease as you get older. Now, if you're 30 or younger, you probably don't spend much time thinking about that. You have energy to do whatever you feel like doing. And whatever you don't feel like doing probably wasn't worth doing anyway. We have all these plans. You have all these expectations, maybe good intentions. Maybe you want to do good things in the world, great things in the world, things for the Lord, maybe even. But at some point, you're going to be confronted with reality. You are not able to change the world around you. In fact, you are not even able to change yourself. Some people find that very difficult to accept. They might develop an underlying bitterness in their lives. Others become deeply frustrated. Others, again, frantically throw themselves into all sorts of projects. Maybe they can't change the most important things in their lives, so they try to change everything else. Against all of that, the first petition of the Lord's Prayer takes us back all the way to the beginning. And it says, the most important thing for you is not to change your world. The most important thing for you in life is not even to change yourself. The most important thing for you in life is to know the Lord. That's the first thing that you should pray for, that you would rightly know the Lord. And only then, when you have the proper mindset, should you pray that you can rightly serve the Lord. And that's also what the Catechism is telling us here in explaining the first petition. It asks us, what is the first thing that you should pray for? First, that you would rightly know God. Second, that you would rightly serve God. So in this first petition, we pray, hallowed be your name. What does it actually mean to hallow God's name? What is his name? Well, his name is his reputation. The name of God is the sum total of his self-revelation to date. It's everything that he has revealed about himself. That is his name. And one of the first things that the Lord reveals about himself in Scripture is that he is holy. At its most basic level, to be holy means to be set apart. It means to be separate, and that already becomes apparent in the opening verses of Genesis. God is separate from his creation, completely separated. So he is intrinsically holy. We have a, a certain holiness as well, but ours is derived from God. But his holiness is intrinsic to himself. He is intrinsically holy. He is also morally pure, completely morally pure. He is separated not just from creation, but from all that is sinful. He is separated from all of the consequences of sin. He is separated from all that reminds him of sin. God is holy in the very essence of his being. So to hallow God's name means to acknowledge that, to recognize that, to see that clearly, that God is holy. 
to acknowledge him as the great, sovereign, holy God that he is. And by nature, we are not able to do this. We used to be able to do it in paradise. We were created to reflect God's attributes, including the attribute of holiness. The Canons of Dort, chapter 3, 4, article 1, puts it so well when it says, In the beginning, man was created in the image of God. He was adorned in his mind with true and wholesome knowledge of his creator and of all spiritual things. His will and heart were upright, all his affections pure, and therefore man was, wait for it, completely holy. In paradise, our first parents knew the Lord. They knew the Lord, and this knowledge was reflected in their lives at all times. So they, in a sense, could pray this petition with a clear conscience. We, on the other hand, are not able to hallow God's name anymore. Romans 3 verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We cannot even know the Lord, let alone hallow Him. In fact, we have never lived a life worthy of the glory of God. Not once has there ever been a moment in our lives that was completely worthy of the glory of God. The Catechism reminds us of that on Lord's Day 44 when it says that in this life even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. So you can be sure that the one thing that you are absolutely not able to do is to hallow God's name. In fact, if God were to hallow his name apart from Christ, he would have to utterly destroy us. Do you realize that? Remember that God is holy. Remember that holiness means that he is completely separated from sin. His eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot look at wrong, like he says in Habakkuk 1 verse 13. If he really wants to hallow his name among sinners, the way to do it would be to wipe them off the face of the earth in an instant. And one day he will. Isaiah 66 verse 18 says, he says, Therefore I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory. And then in verse 24, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. You see, one day, God will hallow his name forever. So, how then can we pray the first petition? Grant us, first of all, that we might rightly know you. This is a dangerous thing to pray. Maybe you don't really, really realize how dangerous it is to pray this. Deuteronomy 4, verse 24 says that the Lord, your God, is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He's a consuming fire. How, how well do you want to know him? If you're going to pray this petition, you need to do so in an awareness of your own sins. In other words, you need to pray in profound humility. So this first petition is a prayer for grace. It is a prayer that can only be answered in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's ultimate self-revelation. This afternoon, our reading came from John chapter 17, part of his high priestly prayer. And in verse 1, he says, Father, the hour has come. So what does he mean? He means that the time of his death, the hour of his death, is at hand. He's about to be arrested, to be put on trial, to be crucified. He's going to die a slow, 
horrendous, gut-wrenching, agonizing death. He will be crushed by the wrath of God. He's going to die for sinners, and in dying for sinners, he will obtain eternal life for them. That's what it means in verse 2 when it, when it says there, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all those whom you have given him. That's what it says in verse 2. Jesus is going to obtain eternal life for sinners. And look at verse 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, through his sacrifice, he will enable them to know God. He will enable them to hallow God's name because that's what the first petition is. Grant us first of all that we might rightly know you. And Jesus already lived a life that revealed the glory of God. He already lived a life that hallowed God's name in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. But now he's going to reveal the ultimate glory of God in punishing sin. The cross is the ultimate completion of this mission, of this process of glorifying God on earth. God is the just judge. Jesus is going to undergo that judgment. He will die for sinners, and so on the cross, he will show them the glory of God. Now, you might wonder, how does his crucifixion show the glory of God? Remember the words of the catechism here in Lord's Day 5. God demands that his justice be satisfied. Remember also from the catechism that his justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. So, either the sinner dies or the substitute dies. But for God to be glorified, one of the two need to die. And Jesus is that substitute. Therefore, the cross is the ultimate answer to this prayer, hallowed be your name. The cross is God's ultimate self-revelation. So if you are going to pray the first petition, you do it in the shadow of the cross. And it has to be read, this first petition, and prayed in the light of the open tomb and of the ascension. In verse 5, Jesus is looking forward to that already. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. These words look ahead to the ascension. And so by saying this, he's centering this cross in the middle. The cross is part of the total sweep of God's redemptive work of salvation and saving sinners. It centers on Christ and on his work of redemption that he is going to carry out. Can you imagine anything that would hallow God's name more than that? Grant us first of all that we might rightly know you and sanctify, glorify, and praise you in all your works and which shine forth your almighty power, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, mercy, and truth. Can you think of anything greater that would lead us to sanctify, glorify, and praise God more than that ultimate work of redemption, the culmination of all of his other works? Can you think of anything that reveals his power more than that? Can you think of anything that reveals his wisdom more than that? Can you think of anything that reveals his goodness, his righteousness, his mercy, his truth? More than that, can you think of anything that reveals his glory more than that? The great reformer John Calvin once wrote, quote, If it be objected that never was there anything less glorious than the death of Christ, I reply, 
that in that death we behold a magnificent triumph which is concealed from wicked men. For there we perceive that atonement has been made for sins, the world has been reconciled to God, the curse has been blotted out, and Satan has been vanquished. Should that not lead us to more praise? And that's one area, um, as Reformed people, where we probably fall short. Praise, praise in our prayers. Praise is something that we don't always do well when we pray. This was actually something that I, I really noticed traveling to Indonesia recently and listening to people pray. They praise God far more than we do. The whole first third of their prayer, the first quarter, the first third is all praise. It's praise to God. And we don't seem to do that as much, and maybe that's because we still put ourselves too, too much at the center of our prayers. Our starting point is not really the first petition. Our starting point is, well, us. Where we, where we begin from is us. And that doesn't mean necessarily that all of our prayers are self-centered. It just means that, that our starting point is ourselves. And in the, the first petition, Jesus is teaching us, well, your, your starting point is not yourself. It is that you know God. Anything that puts man in the center is bad. It's not about us. We should be out of the picture completely. In fact, a good prayer is a prayer in which you lose sight of yourself because you are so focused on God. We don't want to focus on ourselves. Not in prayer, not outside of prayer. In fact, anything in our lives that draws the focus away from God should either be put back in perspective or be rejected. Now we can all make our own application here, but it is a fact that often we judge things in our lives by asking the question, is this wrong? That question is far too narrow. This is not a question we should be asking. We should not be judging something merely by whether it transgresses one of the written commandments, the written laws of God. In fact, that sort of thinking is pure legalism. A much better question is, does this draw my focus away from God? Does it reduce, in a sense, my knowledge of God? It's an important question because by nature we are already disadvantaged. We live in a world that has no sense of awe, no sense of the holy anymore. In fact, a world that crucified the Lord of glory. So this prayer, this first petition, is, is a prayer for God to open our eyes. It doesn't start with us doing anything or praying to God to make us do anything. It simply begins with recognizing what God has already done. And when we do so, when we recognize that, when we believe that, we already have the beginning of eternal life. That's what Jesus said in verse 3 of our reading. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, to have eternal life is to personally know the one who is eternal. That's what it means for God's name to be hallowed. So if you are able to pray this petition and to actually mean it, God has already shown you grace. God has already revealed something of himself to you. He is already shaping in you an increased awareness of sin. He is already forming in you an increased longing after Christ. 
So what is the first thing that you should pray for? The first thing to pray for is that you would rightly know God. And when you rightly know Him, it is a prayer that you would also rightly serve God. You know, often our focus in our faith life is on wanting to serve the Lord. To paraphrase a catechism, since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ without any merit of our own, we want to do good works. We want to serve the Lord. But before we serve God, we need to know Him. We need to know Him in all of His works, beginning with the greatest work of all, which is our salvation. And that right there is a lifetime's worth of learning already. So the best offering we can give to God is our trust. The best offering is to exercise the faith that He has created in us. God is glorified in our faith. As Martin Luther once put it, Quote, for without faith, God loses his glory, wisdom, righteousness, truthfulness, mercy, etc. in us. In short, God has none of his majesty or divinity where faith is absent. That's what Luther said. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean that God loses those qualities in an absolute sense, as if somehow we can take, take away from the inherent glory of God. But his point is, if, if we don't have faith, we cannot hallow God's name then God is not hallowed in our lives. And in that sense, he does not receive the glory that he should have received. God's majesty and divinity cannot be acknowledged in a heart that has no faith. So the best thing we can offer to God is our own faith to give the fruit of his work in us back to him. That is how you honor God. And that begins in the heart. That begins in the soul. That begins in the mind. The second part of Lord's Day 47 refers to our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And that that order is deliberate. It begins with our thoughts. Now you might wonder how, while your thoughts are in your mind, how can something that happens in your mind give honor and praise to God? I mean, no one else can see it. But the point is that the first petition is absolute. It's not just a surface thing. In the first petition, we pray that God would so direct our whole life that his name is always honored and praised. And that begins with ourselves. It begins with our thoughts. It is entirely possible to lead an outwardly respectable life, but to have a thought life that is in rebellion against God. It doesn't have to be just obvious sins like um, contemplating pornography, for instance. It can also be an attitude, a mindset, maybe an excessive trust in our own capacities, maybe a a deeply rooted lack of humility in our lives. In 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Every thought In Romans 12, verse 2, he writes, Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So the Bible has a lot to say about what happens in our minds. Your mind has everything to do with this. Listen carefully. You cannot pray that you would rightly come to know God without praying that your very thoughts would bring him glory. The first petition is a prayer for the hallowing of God's name, starting with our own sanctification. That begins in the mind. That begins in the heart. It begins in the soul. And after thought, you still don't get deeds. 
after thought come words. Now, much could be said about glorifying God in our words. The catechism again follows that, that line, our thoughts, our words, and our actions. Much could be said about glorifying God in our, in our words. Think, for example, of the solemn warning given in Proverbs 10, verse 19, where words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And this proverb makes no exceptions. It doesn't even say, well, you're, you're exempted from this when you talk about spiritual things. It doesn't do that. It simply says, blanket statement, when words are many, transgression is not absent. That's, that's horrifying. The proverb, you could be talking about something good. It doesn't matter. The proverb still warns us. Think about the tremendous hazards that are exposed in this proverb. The tremendous hazards faced by office bearers, such as ministers, elders, and deacons, who spend so much time thinking about or speaking about spiritual things in the congregation. That's why as office bearer, it has to begin with yourself. Brothers who are office bearers currently and and incoming ones, it has to begin with yourself. It has to. The, The first thing that you need to give to the congregation and to the Lord is your own sanctification. And that's something you cannot work in yourselves, so you need profound humility before you even think, let alone speak. Think about how easily we can speak in a way that does not reflect God's glory. Think about Christians in general. The sins, the gross sins committed on social media by Christians. People post things on TikTok or Instagram that they would never dare to say or show in real life. We cannot do that. We cannot profane God's name by our behavior whether it be online or in real life, and then afterwards pray, hallowed be your name. That's blasphemy. It becomes mockery. Then God might hallow his name one day by judging you. It's only at the very end that Lord's Day 47 mentions deeds. Deeds come last. And that shows us where the emphasis lies on on hallowing God's name. And maybe this surprises you. Maybe you wanted to do all these things for the Lord. Well, the Lord does sometimes give us opportunities. Does Ephesians 2 verse 10 not speak about deeds prepared in advance for us to do? But again, it has to begin with your own sanctification. It has to begin with your thoughts, with your words. And only then does it translate into deeds. Maybe, maybe then the Lord can use you for something. But you know what? It might not be something as glamorous as you had hoped Maybe you will only be the right person at the right time to enable someone else to be used by the Lord in a great way. We need those too, you know. In business, they talk about positioning. Positioning is so important. You, you position yourself in a given market so that you are in the right place at the right time with the right resources when an opportunity opens up. It's all about positioning. Sometimes a Christian life can work that way as well. 
You might be the right person in the right place at the right time to have an impact on someone's life, and then the Lord might use that person in a particular way. So don't discount yourself just because you're not in the middle of things. You think God is working elsewhere, not working in my life. No, that's not true. You don't know. You don't know. Many of us have heard of John Calvin, a man who had an enormous impact on the theology of the Reformation. He happened to be passing through the Swiss city of Geneva on his way to Strasbourg. He wanted to stay there and do some quiet studying. He wasn't planning to be in the center of things. He didn't want to stay long. But there was a local pastor, Guillaume Farrell, who, who heard that he was there and he tried to persuade him to stay in Geneva and help the cause of the Reformation. Calvin was dismissive until Farrell said to him, you are only following your own wishes. If you do not help us in this work of the Lord, the Lord will punish you for seeking your own interest rather than his. Well, that shocked Calvin, so he agreed to stay. And that, his stay there in Geneva had a big impact on the further development of the Reformation. Now, Farrell himself was no minor reformer. But in this case, the Lord used him at that time in that place to, to direct the life of someone who subsequently had a much greater impact on the Reformation. Farrell was just positioned in the right place at the right time. So maybe the Lord is positioning you. Maybe, or maybe you're still being prepared before then. But the question is, are you ready? What are you doing to prepare yourself? What are you reading where are you investing your time and your energy? Think, thinking here of the youth, especially of the young men. Do not waste these formative years of your life. The time between the ages of, say, 16 and 26. It's called the critical decade. And a lot of people tune out. They go off, they do whatever they want. have a nominal church attendance, and then, and then one day they grow up and they, they want to be used by the Lord for, for some work. Or they have to assume responsibility as a father or, or, or maybe even potentially as an office bearer. But, but at that point, you cannot, you cannot catch up on those 10 years that easily. So the question is, what, what are you doing now to prepare yourself so that the Lord can use you in the future? Where are you investing your time, your, your energy, Are you ready? Is your greatest desire that God would hallow his name in your life? Do you want to see his name glorified through, through all the earth? Does your heart skip a beat when, when you read the prophets? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea, is that what you want? It's so important, especially in parenting. Parents, has the Lord's name been hallowed in your lives? Have your children seen you worship? Do they see you on your knees? Has the holiness of God transformed your life? Do you, when you discuss his word after dinner, do you do it with a sense of awe? Is there joy in your discussions? The greatest gift that you can give to your children is not an inheritance. It is not to start them off in a financially secure 
position. The greatest gift you can give to your children is their own personal holiness. What would you be willing to give for that? How badly do you want to see the glory of God in your life? What if it took illness or being laid off from work maybe or undergoing a difficult situation in your life that you had to deal with, that your family saw you deal with that, that it brought out the glory of God in your life in a whole new way, that it sanctified you in a way that you never intended or wanted, but that is so real. Is God's glory worth that in your life? And it's, it's hard for us to ask these questions, to, to think our way through that. Maybe the answer is, is no, because we were afraid. But then we should remember that the Lord also gives us grace. Hallowed be your name. Grant us that we might first of all know you. And that's not an instant thing that grows over time. But it is only when we begin to know God that we can be motivated to act accordingly. It's simply not something you can work in yourself. Martin Luther once put it this way. He said, a rock in the sun does not need to be told to become warm. It just becomes warm. And that's, that's how it works in our lives. As we come to know the Lord more and more, we, we desire more and more to serve him. We are transformed and then, then deeds come out of that. Then you're open to being positioned. You're open to maybe saying certain things at certain times or being intervening in someone's life at a certain point in time. You start to see these things much more clearly. You believe that God transforms people, don't you? Or do you not believe that someone who has communion with the Father through the life of the Son and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be transformed. Is that, that communion with God not greater than all other motivations? And look at this. We're only at the first petition. You could spend your whole life on this, just this first petition. May the Lord open our eyes to see his glory. May he hallow his name in our lives more and more. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he will never take that knowledge away from us again. Amen.